0: Hi, my name is Andre Gonowella. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is General David Petraeus. Uh, General Petraeus really needs no introduction, but I'll give one anyway. Uh, General Petraeus has had a 37 year career in the US military, which includes command of the Surge in Iraq, which we will talk about during this interview, uh, command of the US CENTCOM, and command of coalition forces in Afghanistan. Uh, he also served as CIA director, and he is recognized as one of the foremost experts in counterinsurgency. And is viewed by many as one of our country's top military minds. He has been quite vocal in his commentary on the war in Ukraine, and uh, he is a current partner at KKR and the chairman of the KKR Global Institute. Uh, So, General Petraeus, uh, thank you for coming back on the burn bag uh, once again. Thank you.
1: Good to be with you again, Andre. Thank you.
0: So, General, uh, I want to talk about three key topics uh, during this interview. First, the Iraq War at twenty years, uh, the Russo-Ukraine War, and then your new book that's actually coming out in October, "A uh, Conflict: The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to the Russian Invasion of Ukraine." Uh, but first, the Iraq War at twenty, uh, your service during Iraq was quite notable. Uh, but I'd love to sort of hear from you about some of your reflections on the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, what do you remember hearing, seeing? feeling in those days leading up?
1: Well, we were actually getting our news from, of all things, uh, in addition from the chain of command, uh, the headquarters above us and so forth, but from BBC World World Service. Again, this is before we had uh, internet out in the middle of the Kuwaiti desert. Uh, We eventually did establish links we could follow CNN and so forth, but we didn't have it at that point in time. Um, So we would literally tune into BBC World Service uh, during the day and find out what the latest was. Um, I I must confess that I always thought that Saddam or I reasonably thought that Saddam would capitulate, uh, that he was going to take this right up to the last moment. And then he would say, oh, so sorry. Let me welcome the inspectors in. Uh, This is a misstep on my part because clearly what was poised in the desert uh, of Kuwait was going to represent a substantial threat to his regime not just to his military forces and it was should have been clear to him this time that we weren't going to stop uh, at a certain point as we did after the liberation of Kuwait having entered part of southern Iraq uh, that this time we were going to go all the way to Baghdad and you know we were again quite committed to toppling the regime that he had established and over which he had ruled for for some decades. Uh, And that didn't happen, of course. Um, And so the hours leading up to this, all of a sudden, uh, shock and awe began. uh, And then we launched the invasion without the kind of 40-some-odd-day air campaign that preceded the liberation of Kuwait uh, and uncoiled in In Kuwait and launched that operation, launched the fight to Baghdad. For a number of us, it was our first true experience of combat. I'd been in contingency operations, been in war zones, I'd been in El Salvador, I'd uh, been in Haiti, I'd been in Bosnia for a year and so forth. But uh, this is the first really full on combat for me and many members of the 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault, which I was privileged to command at the time. This was an infantry division with a lot of augmentation, probably close to 20,000 troops in total, Um, a standard light infantry outfit. But then we also had 254 helicopters, the largest helicopter fleet, I think, by far of any division in the world. And that gave us extraordinary air mobility and also a very formidable armada of attack helicopters, of Apache helicopters, uh, some uh 72 of them as I recall, so a very substantial number. Um and that combination made the division uh very flexible, very lethal, but there was also an extraordinary logistical element connected with that. And in fact, I was focused much more on the logistics of setting the conditions. I was very confident that our brigade commanders and their subordinate commanders and our air assault troopers would fight uh, very impressively. The question was, could could the division headquarters and I, could we position all this properly? Could we ensure that we didn't run out of fuel, we didn't run out of water, which was already uh, very important given the, the heat that was already creeping into Iraq at that time? Um, it, well, there were some fairly stiff fights. Uh, it was a surprise that the most formidable of the enemies was Uh, irregular forces. There were certainly uh, battles with Revolutionary Guard elements, which we had thought would be the the stiffest resistance. But it turned out that the Saddam Fedayeen, which is this irregular kind of guerrilla force, uh, turned out to be the most tenacious. Uh, And again, there were some very stiff fights. The 101st Airborne Division liberated three major cities in southern Iraq. um, After Reasonable battles in each case, several days to liberate Najaf, uh, a tough day-long battle to liberate Kuwait. These are the first and second holiest Shia cities in, in all of uh, Shia Islam. Uh, and then uh, a battle to liberate uh, the capital, Hillah, the, the capital of Babel province, uh, literally the biblical Babylon. Uh, in route to Baghdad. And then, of course, we were ordered north unexpectedly because we were supposed to end up with our area of responsibility, including Baghdad International Airport, which we really needed because of the hard stand for all these helicopters that we had. The dust and desert are very, very tough on helicopter blades, turbine engines and so forth. Uh, But instead, we had to go north to Mosul uh, on about uh, 36 hours notice because the situation there was completely out of control. The unit that was supposed to come through Turkey and down uh, into Iraq was not allowed to do that by Turkey. It had to come up through Kuwait uh, after the battle uh, for Baghdad was over, and they didn't get all the way up to Nainua province to Mosul. So we went up there, and that's where we subsequently spent uh, the rest of that first year uh, in Iraq. A couple of items to highlight here, I think, that are really important. Um, were the, first of all, a number of the assumptions that we'd been given about how this would unfold um, were invalidated fairly early on. Uh, the expectation that the Iraqi forces would surrender, that the uh, local officials and others would remain in place, including police forces, Um, that basically would topple the top of the regime, Saddam, his sons, the other key figures around him, maybe down a few levels, but that the the professionals, the bureaucrats, the ministry officials, all of these, again, at the provincial and then the national level would remain in place. And that obviously did not obtain. Uh, Everyone fled, and there was a tremendous amount of looting and disorder and so forth, and it took a, a good bit of time to get a grip on after it was clear to the population that the regime had collapsed, that Saddam and his sons uh, had disappeared, uh, and so forth. And so that was a very substantial change. And then the organization that was established to take over, uh, I remember actually asking in Kuwait, in the final gathering of the commanders, uh, we were asked if we had any questions. And I asked, you know, could you give a little more detail about what happens after we get to Baghdad and topple the regime. And I was told by the deputy head of the Organization for Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, a retired three-star who knew me, he said, Dave, you just get us to Baghdad, we'll take it from there. I remember calling them up actually after we'd, we'd taken Najaf midway to to Baghdad. And, um, and I said, okay, we got this one city, why don't we practice here what it is that we're going to do up in Baghdad? Can you come up and give us a hand? And they were still getting organized, and basically there was nothing forthcoming. And then after toppling Baghdad, uh, again, uh, the assumptions had been so invalidated uh, that the plan just was not coming together. And, and And the challenge was that our force was really too small to secure all of Iraq by itself. We really needed these uh, Iraqi partners, uh, as the plan had had laid out. That there was frustration with that organization. Secretary Rumsfeld basically replaced them with another ad hoc team, the Coalition Provisional Authority. Uh, In mid to late May, the uh, Ambassador Paul Bremer, the head of this CPA, arrived around that time. And the truth is, by then, we actually had things going pretty well. Uh, Up in Mosul, we reopened the police academy. We had we were training other Iraqi security forces to help us with the various security tasks that were really beyond the sheer numbers uh, that we had. Uh, we were repairing the damaged infrastructure. We had an interim provincial council, the first one in all of Iraq, an interim governor, would reopened a border with Syria in accordance with the UN, council security, UN security Council resolutions on trade with Iraq, and had even found money uh, that one of the bank leaders had had hidden away uh, and paid the civil servants of Iraq. So things were actually going quite well, uh, at least in that area. And then some really tragic decisions uh, were taken that cut us off at the knees, cut our effort off at the knees. And these are, of course, the two very famous uh, CPA orders, one and two, as I recall. Uh, One fired the military without telling them what their future was. With no real plan, so clearly there needed to be disarmament, um, demobilization, and reintegration—the traditional DDR uh, concept, if you will—put into operation. But you need to do that in a, in a in a planned way that tells them how we're going to help them provide for their families while they are seeking alternate employment. And that was not present. It was six very long and increasingly. Uh, violent weeks uh, of demonstrations and so forth until the CPA actually addressed that issue and provided for stipends, but we'd lost an enormous amount by that point in time. And then the other blow was the decision to conduct debathification, in other words, to throw all of these bath party members out to down to level four, which was which included general bureaucrats and college professors and so forth, 110 or 120 tenured professors in the University of Mosul along, alone. Um, and these are essentially the people we needed to run the country, certainly take out the top one, two, maybe even third level, uh, but certainly not number four and and absolutely not without an agreed reconciliation process where they could apply, show that they're, uh, they'd never truly uh, participated in the kinds of activities for which the Bath Party was being disestablished um, and could continue to, to contribute, keep their jobs and help us run their country. Uh, and instead, that was tremendous upheaval as a result of that. We got a special authority in the north uh, from Ambassador Bremer that allowed us to conduct a local round reconciliation process. And we did that for many, many thousands uh, of Iraqis. Uh, and that bought us a period of time in the north where they were back with us. They were supporting us again, instead of opposing the new Iraq. But unfortunately, that did not last uh, long beyond the, our departure. Uh, and these twin decisions, uh, together with the CPA's decision to run the country as sort of a pro-consul or what have you, um, really made matters vastly more difficult than needed to be the case. And in some respects, the, these decisions weren't really truly addressed until the surge in 2007, uh, which, of course, I came back to command as a four-star, having commanded as a three-star, the organization that conducted the train and equip mission uh for the Iraqi security forces. So to come back to that again, you know, I really wasn't sure that, that that we actually were going to go to war. Uh, I sort of thought that Saddam would capitulate at the last moment. He did not. The fight to Baghdad went quickly, I guess, if you were watching at home on a television screen, but there were a lot more difficult fights and other episodes in that. Uh, and then the aftermath uh, was much, much messier than it should have and needed to have been. Um in particular because of these two really terrible decisions uh, that set back the whole effort and essentially incentivized hundreds of thousands of Iraqis to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it.
0: That's really interesting, especially really dissecting those internal politics that were going on. Uh, And as he mentioned, the surge, uh, I remember I was too uh, I was about ten years old in two thousand and seven, but we had antenna TV, so all I could watch was the news. And this was when I heard General David Petraeus for the first time, and you were the general uh, in Iraq. And, uh, you know I've known you, I've known of you ever since. Uh, but the surge, I mean, on the ground, what was the situation that the surge uh, was actually seeking to rectify? and how was it? Designed.
1: Well, the country was in a civil war. Uh, Sunni and Shia uh, were locked in those areas where you had uh, mixed populations. Uh, and certainly throughout the Sunni area uh, as well, the country was in a full-blown civil war. Um, and this had come about because in, in 22 February 2006, uh, Al-Qaeda Sunni extremists blew up the third holiest Shia shrine uh, in Iraq, uh, Samra Mosque, which is, again, a Shia shrine within a Sunni-majority city, Samra, north of Baghdad. And this set off a sectarian cycle of violence uh, that just kept getting worse and worse and worse throughout the course of 2006. Uh which coincided with a period when we were withdrawing our forces from neighborhoods, from local bases and so forth, from living with the people to large bases with the plan of then drawing those forces down and starting to send them home, uh, handing off to Iraqi security forces. And the problem with that was that over time, fairly quickly, the Iraqi security forces could no longer handle the escalating level of violence. Some of them uh, became completely combat ineffective uh, or intimidated, or in some cases, sided with one or the other, typically in in the Baghdad area with the the Shia militia. Uh, And so this Sunni Shia cycle of violence was completely out of control. When President Bush in December of 2006 made the decision to conduct a surge and to replace the commander and ambassador and U.S. Central Command commander, there were 53 dead bodies due to violence, civilian, every 24 hours just in Baghdad alone. That is completely out of control. And so, you know, I'd been home for 15 and a half months or so by the time I went back in in, uh, late January. I'd been told when I came home from the three-star tour that I would likely go back, but it would be in the summer of 2007, this turned out to be in in, in late January, early February. Uh, And we'd been distilling the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan, trying to capture them in a counterinsurgency field manual. We did this, the Army and Marine Corps together, Lieutenant General, then Lieutenant General Jim Mattis was my counterpart. He embraced this fully as well. Uh, And we were overhauling every other aspect of how the Army uh, and the Marine Corps prepared their leaders, their forces, the organizational design, the materiel, uh, training exercises, all of this. Uh, we overhauled every course for commissioned, non-commissioned warrant officers, um, overhauled the big exercise in the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert uh, to reflect that this is a counterinsurgency that we're conducting, not a force-on-force armor versus armor, which had continued for some period of time, and tried to capture what was necessary uh, in a counterinsurgency campaign in a general level, not specifically to Iraq or Afghanistan, but in a general level in this counterinsurgency field manual. And that became the intellectual uh, basis, if you will, for what it was we did. Uh, when I went back and we conducted the surge, the surge that mattered most in the end was actually not the additional twenty-five to 30,000 American men and women in uniform, as important as they were to enabling the rapid implementation of this new strategy. The, the real surge was the surge of ideas. It was the change 180 degrees from what we'd been doing before. Uh, the big ideas were completely the opposite uh, of what we've been executing for the previous really year and a half that we had been on that trajectory. So we realized we had to go back into the neighborhoods to secure the people. We had to live with the people to do that. We had to take back control for secure, from the Iraqi security forces. By the way, neither of these was popular with the prime minister at the time, and it was a bit of a tug of war over this. Uh, We recognized that we could not kill or capture our way out of an industrial strength insurgency. We needed to reconcile uh, with as many of the rank and file of the Sunni insurgents, the Shia militia, uh, and so forth, even as we intensified the even more relentless pursuit every single night with our special mission units of the irreconcilable leaders of Al Qaeda in Iraq, the major Sunni insurgent groups. And the Iranian supported Shia militia elements. Um, and then we integrated even further the civil and military aspects uh, of our campaign plan. Ambassador Ryan Crocker, the greatest diplomatic partner any soldier ever had. We signed the campaign plan together. It wasn't, there wasn't a military plan and a civil plan. It was completely integrated, uh, beefed up the provincial reconstruction teams, so that once we achieve security, which we did, uh, although it was very, very hard, but once we achieve security, you solidified the security gains by what you did to show the people that life would be better if they supported us and then the Iraqi government, rather than continuing to support the insurgents or extremists or Shia militia. Uh, and again, as I told Congress during my confirmation hearing, uh, it. It it will get much harder before it gets easier, and it did. The casualties on our side went up. uh, But fairly early on, we started seeing that civilian casualties were going down. Then sensational attacks were going down. Then overall, security incidents started to nose over. And by the time I went back with Ambassador Crocker to testify at the six-month mark, violence was down by some 40 to 50%. Uh, our casualties were going down. Civilian casualties had already gone down very substantially. It was very clear that this was was a real trend, that, that this was developing in the right direction. That got us more time. Uh, and six months after that, violence was down even more. And By the 18-month mark, uh, it was down by nearly 90%. And I, I went to U.S. Central Command at about the 19th and a half month mark in that particular tour. So it was quite a dramatic achievement by our men and women in uniform uh, coalition, Iraqi as well as uh, American, and by our diplomatic partners, our development experts, the the, uh, intelligence officers and so forth. It basically pulled Iraq back from a true civil war. uh, And it gave Iraq three and a half more years of tremendous opportunity because violence continued to gradually go down after that, which unfortunately ended when the prime minister of Iraq, within 24 hours of the departure of our final four-star general, General Austin, now the uh, Secretary of Defense in the United States, uh, he, the prime minister, preferred charges against the senior Sunni Arab political figure Uh, the vice president, Tariq al-Hashimi, and his security detail, this set off uh, renewed Sunni-Shia friction, demonstrations, then violent repression of those demonstrations. And unfortunately, it tore the fabric of society apart again between Sunni and Shia that would work together to put stitches into uh, in the course of, again, driving that violence down and then convincing the citizens that they should support the new Iraq rather than those who were trying to uh, overthrow it. Um, and, and of course, eventually that allowed the Islamic State to reconstitute itself uh, to create the caliphate in northeastern Syria and northern Iraq required us to go back in to help the Iraqi security forces. Although, to be fair, it was the Iraqi security forces that bore the brunt of that fight. And as what we did was advise, assist, and enable Uh, and rarely conduct operations ourselves, and those are usually conducted by our special operations forces, uh, often together with Iraqi special operators to uh, capture or, if necessary, kill. Uh, key Sunni extremists, the key leaders of the Islamic State.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, in any military operation or movement, there's no guarantee of success. But the key sort of themes I noticed in your answer were adaptability, flexibility, and integration. And, you know, before we move on, I mean, do you have any uh, comments on that observation?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, we also set out to create a culture of learning in the counterinsurgency field manual. And I think I was the one who put it in there. Because I was sort of the editor in chief of this effort uh, with one of my great West Point classmates, Doctor Con Crane, that I shanghaied from the <laughs> uh, U.S. Army War College to lead the effort uh, and pull it together. Uh, and in there, we put words to the effect that these, in this kind of conflict, the side that learns the fastest typically prevails. And we tried very hard to create a culture of learning. There were numerous actions on my personal battle with them, on my recurring schedule that uh, ensured that I met, for example, with the leaders, the full colonels that led all of these different lessons learned teams that we had on the battlefield from the Army, the Marine Corps, Joint Forces Command, Special Operations Command, uh, Asymmetric Warfare Group, the Counterinsurgency Center, et cetera. So they one, one hour every month, they would sit with me. They would share lessons they felt needed to be learned, but lessons aren't really learned until they're incorporated in the big ideas and the campaign plan, the policies, practices, SOPs, and then communicated throughout the breadth and depth of the organization, and then actually implemented. So I actually had an intellectual construct in mind that had these four tasks of a strategic leader, getting the big ideas right, communicating them effectively, overseeing their implementation, and then determining how you need to refine them so that you can do it again and again and again. Every month when the division commanders, the two-star generals and above came together to meet with me, they would be required to give, each of them would have to give two uh, lessons that that they'd learned or initiatives they'd launched that would be of interest relevance uh, to the others in the room. Um, <clears throat> once a month, I, or, I'm sorry, once a week, I met with the strategic planners And the idea was that they would force me to make decisions about the future. Because, again, when you're commanding a force of some 200,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines and another 200,000 civilian contractors, if you want to be a certain place six months from now, you got to make decisions now so that they can be then promulgated. They can make their way through the chain of command all the way down to the levels at which uh, you have the strategic captains and strategic sergeants and lieutenants who are turning big ideas policy at the four-star level into action on the ground under body armor and Kevlar uh, with a weapon, doing what only they could do. And that was to engage the population and to engage the enemy. So again, we worked very hard to be a learning organization. And I even had an hour a month on my calendar, where I engaged with the individual who replaced me in the three-star command that I'd held before in the United States, which, which was termed the engine of change for our Army. It was based at Fort Leavenworth headquarter- Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, but the commander had six different hats, and when you used all those hats to the full effect, um, you could really have a huge impact uh, on the Army. Uh, when it came to everything that I described earlier, all leader development for commissioned, non commissioned warrant officers, the exercise scenarios, that was the mission rehearsal exercise before a unit deployed, the road to deployment, how it started. That was one of our organizations that did that, the training of the two and three star headquarters, which we oversaw as well, their major exercises, commanding general staff, college school, of advanced military studies, center for army leadership, center for army lessons learned. the um, There's a command and control uh, uh, responsibility, et cetera. So if you if you used all of these levers that you could put your hands on as the commander of the Combined Arms Center and the other hats and titles that you had, you could institutionalize what it was that we were learning on the battlefield. So I did an hour a month with him to share what I felt needed to be incorporated in doctrine, organizational design. Uh, training exercises, leader development, uh, material requirements, uh, personnel policies and practices, and then also uh, facilities of all things. Because facilities had to be crafted in a way as well, or requirements for facilities needed to be designed to ensure that we could do what we needed to do back in the States to prepare our forces adequately for deployment to Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere.
0: General, Iraq is certainly not at the point uh, or the stage at where we would like it to be very much. So so General, I'd love to ask you if you have any regrets from your time in Iraq and about some of your reflections on mistakes the US government made uh, in general. We talked about some of those mistakes the US government made uh, earlier in the interview, but I'd love to get uh, your take uh, on yourself and the government.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's, there's lots of regrets about what took place. Uh, I think that two or three biggest mistakes that we made were the very early ones uh, that I highlighted, firing the Iraqi army without telling them what their future was, uh, and then debathification without an agreed reconciliation process. Um, then also perhaps the way it was run, this is a little bit more arguable. Uh, but We certainly should have established an embassy right away instead of this pickup ad hoc team, the coalition provisional authority, The leaders of which, with one exception, Ambassador Bremer, by and large, were rotating every three months. So you could never get any continuity even. Um, So again, those were early on. Uh, Then I think I regret that we didn't leave some residual combat force. We did leave trainers and security assistance personnel uh, at the end of 2011 when we pulled out the final uh, four-star and the final combat elements. And it I don't know that that would have prevented Prime Minister Maliki from embarking on these highly sectarian initiatives that he pursued that, again, as I mentioned earlier, tore apart the fabric of society. Would worked together, to bring back uh, together. Um, but it would, at the very least, have made it a lot easier for us to deploy these uh, advisor teams, combat uh, support Uh, elements and so forth back into Iraq, we had to basically rebuild the infrastructure that from which we had withdrawn. Um, And again, we could have much more rapidly come to the help of the Iraqi security forces as the Islamic State swept into northern Iraq and western Iraq from Syria. After reconstituting in in, uh, Iraq and in, in Syria and making the most of the Civil war that it was, of course, going on between Sunni and Shia uh, in Syria as well. Um, certainly, you know our Iraqi partners bear a considerable amount of responsibility for what has happened as well. Um, the cult, the corruption, if you will, the uh, bureaucratic uh, inadequacies. The lack of good governance, uh, the political nepotism, uh, the emphasis again endlessly on sectarian and tribal and political identities at the expense of uh, the nation, um, the shortcomings in very basic provision of services. You know, the idea that the land of the two rivers can't provide adequate drinking water to its population and that one of the top five oil-producing countries in the world can't provide 24-hour electricity. Again, these are uh, more than counterintuitive. Um, Now, to be fair, I I do feel that the current prime minister, with whom I met some months ago in Munich, Germany, um, does have the right approach, uh, has taken some courageous stands, including publicly saying that he wanted American forces to remain to assist the Iraqi security forces in keeping an eye and pressure on the remnants of the Islamic State, which are now no longer the Islamic State as an army, much less controlling a caliphate on the ground, or even to the extent that they did before uh, in cyberspace, the virtual caliphate. But they are still there in the form of terrorist elements, uh, insurgent, small insurgent groupings and so forth. And they do need our help the Iraqi security forces, uh, again, to keep pressure on these elements and ensure that they're not able to reconstitute as the Islamic State did when the Iraqi security forces took their eye off them after our departure in late 2011, as they were preoccupied with putting down these Sunni demonstrations that were caused by the prime minister's actions against his vice president, his minister of finance, a prominent Sunni parliamentarian and so forth. So I think those are the you know the big reflections as you look back, um, and in many respects, disappointments because the, the hopes obviously were very high for Iraq, and those did not fully materialize.
0: So, General, now I want to move on to another topic: the war in Ukraine. Uh, you have been quite vocal and prominent uh, in your analysis of the war in Ukraine, uh, and have been quite uh, an advocate. Uh, for U.S. support for Ukraine, uh, you recently made a trip actually to there, and uh, I'd love to ask you uh, what you were doing there and what did you learn during that trip.
1: Well, I spent four days there. <clears throat> I've had a number of different groups out there invite me out to Ukraine. I'm on the board of the Kiev Security Forum. Uh, um, I have done a number of events with the Kiev School of Economics, uh, the American University uh, of Kiev. Had invitations from various government leaders, um, from the individual who runs the Yalta Economic Summit, which needless to say has not been in Yalta since 2013, since it's in Crimea. I was there actually at the last one that was in Crimea. And, you know, I'd been talking about Ukraine and I thought I probably should actually see what I could on the ground, uh, and we decided not to just stay the usual day—you know, not come in overnight, to spend the day, and leave that night on the train—but to spend four full days on the ground. Um, and when I <clears throat> sorted out the dates, then the cipher brief on whose board I sit said, "Hey, we'll run a conference while we're there. We'll get American business leaders in to show them what the opportunities are." And surprisingly. Over 60 American business uh, leaders did show up, despite the fact that the first night we were there, two days before the conference, uh, saw the worst air attacks since the very beginning of the war. Now the air defenses performed brilliantly and knocked just about everything down. Um, and then the Atlanta Council, on whose board I'm also uh, a member. Uh, had a longstanding uh, request to present its annual big award to President Zelensky. Uh, and so that was another uh, action that led to this particular trip. Um, we we were able, to, I met with President Zelensky, um, met with a number of the military leaders, both of their intelligence chiefs, met with our embassy, with the UK embassy, my co-author of this book, uh, Conflict. That you kindly mentioned earlier, Andrew Roberts, Baron Roberts of Belgravia, in the House of Lords, uh, was with us. So we, again, got to see the UK ambassador as well, who's done a great deal, I should note, to ensure that the UK has provided uh, all that they have to Ukraine, often in advance of the U- US deciding to provide that similar item, but in vastly greater numbers. <clears throat> so it was very, very valuable. Um, we were also able to go to Bucha uh, to hear from individuals who were there at the time of the really unspeakable atrocities that the Russians carried out north of Ukraine um, when they were stopped around there and could go no farther. Um, trace the battles that took place uh, north of U- of Kiev uh, from the very early days, um, you know, visited this huge pile of Soviet Armor and vehicles and all the rest that had been literally put in a huge parking area, um, and then you know walked the streets of Kiev and saw the determination of the Ukrainian people to continue their lives. Uh, air attacks weren't going to keep them from going about their daily activities, uh, whether it was going to work or even going out to eat in the evening. Um, and the spirit of national unity, of resilience of entrepreneurship and innovation in the face of uh, this terrible, brutal, unprovoked invasion. All of these are very, very impressive. Um, And it reinforced my conviction, having been there, but before the war, uh, the last time, uh, but but at that time, had literally met with the Ministry of Defense, then the regional command headquarters in Kharkiv, then down to a brigade headquarters, then down to the front lines in the Donbass. And I'd realized then, again, several years ago, how already transformed the military was. And of course, it's transformed a great deal more, a tremendous amount more since that time. I came out of that Um With a number of impressions, one which was interesting was uh, I asked President Zelensky, since I am after a partner in one of the world's greatest investment firms, KKR, with over $500 billion under management, you know, what is he doing to take advantage of this spirit of national unity, which is completely uncharacteristic of Ukrainian uh, politics and sentiment prior to the invasion? to to be a catalyst for the kinds of reforms that he was elected to carry out. Uh, Judicial reforms, rule of law, which is always inadequate, uh, how to deal with government bureaucracy that was both uh, uh, insufficient, lack lack transparency, integrity, uh, capability. The issues of certain companies having monopolistic power in certain key sectors, usually headed by oligarchs. Um, need for land reform, all of these. And he actually enumerated all the actions that he has pursued with the government, and which includes legislation to address just about every one of these, which he had not been able to get in the first two and a third years of his tenure, uh, right up until the invasion. But over the last 15 months, they've done this. And in fact, the previous week, he pointed out, uh, they'd arrested the chief justice of the Supreme Court equivalent um, for corruption and found over $2 million in cash in his office. Uh, So if that can be continued, if this legislation can truly be institutionalized, operationalized, uh, then this could transform the country. Just in the way that, frankly, the invasion has transformed the country into a full embrace of Ukrainian nationalism. Keep in mind that, of course, prior to the invasion, there were substantial elements of the population, particularly in the eastern part of the country, that are ethnic Russian and Russian speaking, that had a degree of sympathy for the Russian Federation. That is, by and large, gone. Uh, no one, the irony here is that no one has done more. For Ukrainian nationalism than Vladimir Putin, just as no one has done more for NATO since the end of the Cold War than Vladimir Putin, who set out to make Russia great again. But what he's really done is make NATO great again. Um, You know, I I came away uh, strongly believing that this is about as right versus wrong as you can get in today's day and age. It's not to say that, that Ukraine is perfect or that its democracy is is absolutely, again, um, a shining city on a hill in all respects, uh, that it doesn't still face very daunting challenges and that below the surface there aren't still political uh, differences. What it does mean is that, again, uh, for all of its uh, shortcomings, and we all countries have shortcomings, including obviously our own, um, this is such a vastly better model than is that of the Russian Federation which at this point in time is truly a dictatorship, a kleptocracy, led by a very, very brutal um, leader in Vladimir Putin, who seems to be unconcerned with the staggering casualties that Russian forces have been taking, who thinks that the Russians can still outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans the way that Russians out Napoleon's army and Hitler's Nazis. And of course, what we need to do is everything we possibly can to enable the Ukrainians to convince Putin and Moscow that this is not the case.
0: So, General, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has begun. What are your reactions to and assessments of that counteroffensive? And for our audience, we're recording this on June 22nd. So, As you know, a lot can change, but I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Well, it's still very early days in the counteroffensive. You have to keep in mind the vast logistical challenges of a 600-mile front. That's a good bit farther than the fight to Baghdad, which um, required extraordinary logistics. I remember us pumping 500,000 gallons of fuel just from the first two-week refueling point for our helicopters alone, and then another 500,000 gallons the second and third week So put this into context here, they're trying to position forces, Uh, they're probing right now, they're conducting reconnaissance in force, they're finding the Russian defenses and the minefields in particular, very difficult uh, to get through. They're making incremental gains, they are gaining ground. But as President Zelensky said yesterday, in fact, slower than had been anticipated, there's also been some rain in there that, that slows things down further. Uh, but the bottom line is again, this is going to be an offensive that I think will stretch throughout the summer. Uh, it's going to feature new brigades uh, that are armed with Western tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, artillery, and other uh, weapon systems and, and, and vehicles. The U.S. alone, of course, has provided some $40 billion worth of arms, materiel, and, and other assistance. Uh, I think that the Ukrainians will, over time, pull together armor, infantry, artillery, air defense, electronic warfare, drones, good command and control, uh, follow-on forces right up behind the lead elements and logistics to keep it all going with additional ammunition, food, fuel, water, uh, and so forth, Uh, and that they will achieve some considerable uh, amount of liberation of Ukrainian soil. Uh, But that remains to be seen. And a number of these units have new Ukrainian soldiers that have had modest amount of combat experience. If any, they tend to to have experienced leaders. Uh, But this is the first time they will have been using Western equipment. Some of it is much more advanced than what they've had in the past. It will provide advantages for them, particularly, say, fighting at night. But this is very challenging stuff. This is, again, and they're... They don't don't have the benefit of the years and years of professional development uh, courses and assignments and so forth uh, that, say, their Western counterparts would have had by the time that they are battalion or brigade commanders or even company commanders. What they do have, of course, is extraordinary commitment, morale, determination. They're fighting their war of independence. The Russians don't really know completely what they're fighting for. Many of them are uh, reservists that have been called up, conscripts not that well armed and well equipped, although they have established, again, quite formidable defensive positions, especially along the South. But I think over time, uh, the moral being three to one over the physical, as Clausewitz uh, said and observed, uh, over time, I think you'll see The Ukrainian forces break through these lines, get the Russians moving, Uh, but it's going to be costly. Uh, It already has been. It will continue to be. That is the nature of having to break through established defensives that that have lines in depth with, again, substantial minefields, trench lines, fortifications, obstacles, and so forth, and multiple lines of this. Uh, But I do think at the end that the Ukrainians will actually break through these uh, and will get the Russians having to react to them, which will open up other opportunities and could really crack the Russian uh, defenses uh, and then be able to exploit that.
0: So general as we come to the conclusion of this interview I'd love to talk to you about some of the well some of the concepts you actually discussed earlier particularly logistics but in the context of the book that you're that you're releasing in the fall in collaboration with Andrew Roberts a uh, title conflict uh, the evolution of warfare from 1945 the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So when I hear that title I think of DoD readiness uh, for the next great power conflict as war has evolved, because war has continued to evolve and the wars we're fighting in the 2030s will be far different from the wars we fought in the 2000s. Uh, And of course, in the news media, we always talk about weapon systems in this day and age, but you mentioned logistics, supply chains. Uh, There are murmurs about uh, a a munitions supply crisis, uh, where there are many different threats to our logistical supply chains, for example, the accessibility to ports if we're fighting in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, what do you see as the greatest threats in the logistics domain? And I guess in relation to your book, how have those threats evolved over the past several decades?
1: Well, I think one of the big takeaways from the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, is that wars are not all going to be fast. Uh, they could feature enormous consumption of very substantial rounds. You know, again, we're the U.S. alone, I think, has now provided two million one five five millimeter howitzer rounds. This is heavy artillery. You only can put 43 in a five-ton truck. Just think of the logistics connected with that. Um the consumption, again, is staggering. Uh, and so in the war is not short. Uh, it is of considerable duration. uh, And therefore, the requirements for the industrial base are much more frankly than what the industrial base is configured to provide right now. And so there's a major ramping up in the United States and major European countries and elsewhere uh, of the capacity to manufacture uh, what is required for uh, such an endeavor. Beyond that, the war in Ukraine really isn't the future of warfare. We see little glimpses of, of the future of warfare, the use of drones, but these are modestly capable drones. Uh, we haven't truly seen the advent even yet of the old adage from the Cold War, which held that what can be seen can be hit, what can be hit can be killed. The truth is back in the Cold War days, and I served in the inter-German border as a major. Um, We couldn't see all that well. We didn't have, again, great intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance platforms. Even if we could pinpoint where something was, we couldn't hit it with particular precision, especially if it was moving. Uh, And then, therefore, you couldn't kill all of that. Nowadays, if you think about the modern theater that could actually uh, come about, uh, were fierce competition ever to turn into true military confrontation, which is something we have to prevent, we have to deter by the capabilities we have and the clear willingness to employ those. There can never be a doubt in a potential adversary's mind. But in today's day and age, you can see everything. You can hit everything and you can hit it with stuff that is very hard to defend against, uh, whether it is hypersonic uh, missiles that can maneuver uh, in flight or drone swarms or what have you. Uh, And therefore, you can kill it. So we have to transform our forces from a very small number, relatively small number of huge, incredibly capable, heavily manned and inordinately expensive platforms, the aircraft carrier being most prominent, but all other surface ships, F-35 aircraft, uh, main battle tanks and so forth, from that to a world of a much, much larger number of much smaller platforms and weapon systems, many of which are remotely piloted, uh, and increasingly, uh, many of which will be algorithmically uh, piloted, where the human in the loop is the person who designs the algorithm and the conditions and all the rest of that that have to obtain before that machine can take a particular action, some of which could even be lethal. This is an extraordinary transformation, and it's not just in the air with very long range systems. It's also on the surface of the sea, it's subsurface, it's in space, and it's in cyberspace where you already have this uh, going on to a very considerable extent. So that is a tremendous transformation. It's just hinted at in the war in Ukraine, although there is another aspect of the war in Ukraine that is really quite revolutionary, and that is the presence, the ubiquitous presence of smartphones Uh, internet access, and social media onto which you can load video and and photographs. So uh, again, this is all that we hint at, that we we discuss, that we forecast uh, in conflict, while also still noting the critical importance of strategic leadership that gets the big ideas right, that communicates them effectively, that oversees the implementation and determines how the You have to refine them to do it again and again and again. Um, Looking back at Vietnam, where we didn't even get that remotely right until 1968, uh, in Afghanistan, where it took us from 2001 to 2010 to actually get all of those pieces in place, the right big ideas, the right organizational architecture, the right forces, the right preparation, the right leaders, and so forth. So strategic leadership still is a very very important piece as well
0: thank you general Petraeus. thank you for your time
1: uh it's really been a pleasure to be with you again thank you